0: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Greg Soden, host of the Classical Ideas Podcast. I am a dog parent. I have three little Westies who are all above the age of 10. My dogs have health issues ranging from diabetes to deafness to partial blindness to dermatitis and hip arthritis. Keeping up with these little friends' health issues while keeping them happy and loved is an emotional, stressful, expensive, but also very rewarding journey. My family loves our little friends and we are constantly figuring out new ways to make their lives better while they live with us. Recently, I received a book in the mail from New World Library called Unleashing Your Dog, a field guide to giving your canine companion the best life possible. I was immediately impressed how the authors, Mark Beckoff and Jessica Pierce, discuss ways to improve the quality of life for dogs of all ages and all health conditions. The book resonated with my household immediately, and we have taken many of its tips to heart. If you are a pet parent yourself, you should definitely check out this book. So my guest today is Dr. Jessica Pierce, Dr. Jessica Pierce is an author of 10 books, hundreds of articles, and she is a faculty affiliate at the University of Colorado's Center for Bioethics and Humanities. It's my pleasure to welcome her on the show today to discuss Unleashing Your Dog, a field guide to giving your canine companion the best life possible. Enjoy. for having me. Can you just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience however you see fit?
1: Sure so my name is Jessica Pierce as you said and um, I'm a bioethicist. I, uh, As I think we'll talk about in a few minutes I I began in um, more traditional work in bioethics as a a teacher of medical students and um, in the the field of medical ethics and uh, I've retired from teaching and and write, mainly in the area of animal ethics uh, and environmental bioethics.
0: Wonderful. So as I was poking through your, your bio online, I found that you hold a Master of Divinity from Harvard University and a PhD in Religious Ethics from the University of Virginia. And you're also a bioethicist, as you mentioned. And I It's really cool that you come from the world of religious studies because, as you know, I'm greatly interested in the world of religious studies, especially in higher education. So that's really, really cool to see. Um, So what was your main reason for pursuing your areas of academic interest early on in religious studies and divinity? What took you down that path?
1: So, you know, I... (laughs) I can't say that it was a, a career choice, like, oh my gosh, I, I'm gonna be a bioethicist when I grow up. Um, I what took me down that path was just intellectual curiosity and um, I guess a passion for just thinking about what to me are the most important questions in my life, like why am I here? what's important and what does it mean to live a good life? And, and for me, the the path to getting to explore those questions was through religious studies.
0: Was there any like particular uh, moment in time, like in your undergraduate years or anything like where that really kind of clicked into place where that merging of ethics and religion kind of came to a head?
1: Well, in a couple different ways, you know, oddly, um, and I say oddly because I would identify myself now as an agnostic. Um, but what got me really interested in the study of religion was a class on the Synoptic Gospels um, that I took at Scripps College as an undergraduate. And what. It was a revelation to me that you could actually study this stuff, that it wasn't just something. I mean, I had gone to church when I was growing up um, by my own choice, not my parents' choice. My parents were kind of um, California hippies, and mm-hmm. their approach to religion and religious education was to take us to every different kind of church, synagogue, temple, you know, Buddhist meditation space that they could think of. And, and see what grabbed us. And oddly enough, for me, it was a, the first Baptist church <laughs> of Redlands, California, which for anybody who knows me now would seem like the most um, unobvious choice. Um, but I just I loved the church and I loved the pastor. And then I got to college and I took this class and like, oh, this is actually something people study academically. And it was, it was fascinating. And it was, um, I, I went to school in Claremont, um, which for, I don't know, some of your listeners may know that um, the Claremont School of Theology is a wonderful um, place for graduate study in religion. So I was right across the street from from the Graduate School of Theology there and um, was able to study with like John Cobb, who did process theology and some other really just fascinating people and kind of got into Eastern religions. And um, it was just, I mean, I have to say it was the influence of my dad, too, who himself went to seminary and would also probably... Identify as an agnostic, so it was a good, strong family tradition there.
0: How did you specifically decide what to focus on with your efforts in graduate school? Like, where did you start? Where did the bioethics and the ethics start coming into play?
1: So, I I think it started at Harvard. Um, the The classes that I found most interesting were the classes that focused on ethics and and also on Um, on hermeneutics, on just the, the study of, of meaning. And to me, that was really interconnected with the study of ethics and just where we come to hold certain values as, as individuals and as cultures. And um, at Virginia in particular, uh, I started to really kind of focused strongly on environmental issues and what was interesting is that nobody who I was studying under was really interested in that but I always found myself in in classes you know saying well what about this angle what about it was always the environmental angle or the animal angle I think I drove my professor's crazy with these (laughs) questions. Like, well, that's not really relevant to what we're doing. (laughs) I'm like, yes, it is. It's totally relevant. So, um, and Virginia was just, um, you know, it was a wonderful choice. I didn't go there again with the idea that I wanted to do medical ethics, but uh, my mentor there, Jim Childress, was one of the patriarchs of the field, really one of the founders of the field of of medical ethics, which is now more commonly known as bioethics. And so it was inevitable that that one did bioethics going to Virginia.
0: So since we have this sort of like um, background of you know your own academic path kind of laid out before us now how would you describe the field of bioethics or medical ethics to someone without any knowledge of this field at all like how would you describe this to a brand new person that you would meet like on the street
1: so i mean that in simplest terms it's you know doing work at the intersection of of ethics or the study of values and biological sciences so and to translate that into even more um, sort of obvious terms thinking about issues in medicine that are clearly not just about um, you know drug dosage or you know treatment protocol but end of life you know that's that's one of the key areas in bioethics like how do you decide when it's appropriate to withdraw life-sustaining treatment from somebody. That's a question that's, it is a medical question, but it's also a question that has to do with personal values and social values and, and ethical um, considerations. So it's, it's really that, that intersection of, of medicine and values or biological sciences more broadly.
0: So did you work in the field with people for a long time, like after you finished your education?
1: I did. Although, so yeah, my first job um, after graduate school was at a medical center, a large tertiary medical center. Um, But I still had that interest in environmental issues and in animals. And so what I did was worked on issues in sustainability in, in medical care, which at the time, this was um, in the mid nineties, you know, at the time, nobody really was thinking about those things in medicine. Now it's, um, it's hard not to think about. Um, but you know, my colleague at the university of Nebraska medical center, Andy Jameton and I were sort of the only two people doing what's now known as environmental bioethics. So thinking about, you know, the implications of, um, you know, large, cancer center treating um, people for cancers that are, you know, in at least some measure being perpetuated by the the cancer center's own incinerator. Um, And just this interconnection between healthy communities, healthy lifestyles and sustainability. Um, So
0: were there any particular reasons that like you shift over from people to animals and then specifically into focusing a lot on dogs. Like what was it about animals that really just kept pulling you away from people?
1: Um, so I mean, it was a lot of things. I, I did work on animal ethics when I was at the medical center, but, um, the way The way I was thinking about it at that point in my career, which is sort of typical for the field, is that if you want to work on animal issues, you're doing animal experimentation, not doing it, but thinking about people doing it. so i I did i mean, I, I dabbled in that. that that's not quite um, the right word, but i I served on the ethics committee, the animal, you know, the IACUC, the committee that reviews research protocols and started to go down that path. And I, I found it so personally distressing and horrifying that I just, for my own sanity, like I just, I cannot do this line of work. (laughs) Mm. So I put aside thinking about animals until A couple, it was probably actually a good 10 years into my career. And I was writing a textbook in, in bioethics, contemporary bioethical issues. I was, you know, the core of that textbook is ethical issues in death and dying. And in the background, in my personal life, my dog, Odie, was dying. And so I was sitting, you know, at my desk all day thinking about you know, the the appropriateness of withdrawing treatment from a patient who's suffering or making decisions for a patient who's not um, verbal. And I'm like, my God, these are the same issues I'm dealing with, with Odie. And they're just as ethically complex. They're just as challenging. Um, they're just as gut-wrenching. Um, and there really wasn't anybody talking about it, um, in the veterinary literature, certainly not in the human medical literature because, um, people find it uncomfortable to talk about animals and humans in the same sentence. Um, particularly when you're talking about the value of an individual's life. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, so at that point, I decided, you know, I need to write a book about this. And that was, that was my, my book, The Last Walk, which was, yeah, that's, that was the beginning of the end.
0: Very good. Well, yeah. and so you, you've got a few books out, I know, and you've got a brand new one out that I've recently just read. Here it is. Ha ha. Your new book, <laughs> Unleashing Your Dog, a field guide to giving your canine companion the best possible life uh, that you have out with co-author, is it Mark Beckoff, right? That's right, so that book is out now from my fantastic friends at New World library, and I am personally a guardian. notice my specific vocabulary mm, yes there, I do of three dogs and one cat and I'd love to start off by just hearing a little bit about your own dogs
1: okay so I I have at this time in my life only one dog which is fewer than I've had for many years um. I have a dog named Bella, and if you read you read Unleashing, so you know that I recently had two dogs because Maya, my other dog, is featured here and there in Unleashing. She passed away last summer um, at the ripe age of 15.
0: Um, Wonderful.
1: And yeah, so at the moment I live with Bella, and she is a, you know, she's a, a mixture of Cattle dog, border collie, crazy, yeah. and I don't. Know. <laughs> she's a she's a funny, funny dog, and um, you know she's a. We got her when she was about a year old. She was res, a rescue from our local shelter, and we don't know really what her first year of life was like, other than that she was picked up off the street as a stray and had been either hit by a car or beaten. Um, cause she was, had an injured back leg and she still seven years later, doesn't like people much. Um, and so she's, yeah, she's in, she's an interesting dog. <laughs> well,
0: my, uh, my three dogs, they are all Westies and <laughs> I have two girl Westies named Taryn and Tinker and they fight every day. And they will be sitting in little beds on either side of the living room. One's over there, one's over there, and they're looking at each other, and they just growl at each other from about 20 (laughs) feet apart all day, every day. And uh, Tinker is about 12 years old. She's half blind. She's very, very... Bossy and Taryn is about nine, and she has a lot of issues. Like she has hip arthritis, and she has some uh, dermatitis um, and some other problems. And she recently, last week, had seven teeth pulled.
1: Oh, poor baby. I know.
0: And then we also have a 15-year-old, or he's 14 and a half. He's almost 15, but his name is Duffy, and he is diabetic, half blind, half deaf, and he's as fit as can be. He's a buff little Westie, (laughs) Um, but he really can't see or hear very well. But he's also diabetic, and he's on 12 units of insulin twice a day. So this book is like super personal for me because I have 3 dogs all with varying health conditions and I almost consider my dogs like 3 grumpy retirees. <laughs> yeah. So so th- this is a such a great book for me because I have 3 dogs that are perfectly happy to just kind of lay around and like look at each other all day every day. So this book is really speaking to me about how can I do a better job at making their the rest of their lives as good as I possibly can. So I have a very personal investment in your book as I'm reading. Um, So I just wanted to tell you that. So sorry about my tangent there. No, no,
1: it's good good to know who you're living with.
0: Yeah. Well, and there's a lot in the book that could make many dog guardians feel guilty about their treatment of their dogs, no matter how much they are loved. But it seems to me that there shouldn't be guilt per se, because like I just mentioned, dog guardians can change starting now to give their dogs a better life. And the title, Unleashing Dogs means finding ways to let them have more freedom. So do dog guardians tend to feel guilt when you talk to them about ways their dogs lack freedom? Talk to me a little bit about this.
1: So, yeah, I think it's interesting for this book and also for um, my book, Run Spot Run, which was about the ethics of keeping pets, um, including dogs. I would say guilt is a recurring theme of people who... I would consider the best dog guardians, um, and you know, if if people aren't feeling a little bit guilty, maybe they're they're not thinking quite hard enough about um, the kind of life they're they're living with their dog. Because I think it's just inevitable. Um, it's no different than having a human child. Um, if you are a parent or have been a parent, you know there's no such thing as perfect and there always you will always find ways in which you're falling short or, oh man, I just, I wish I had known 10 years ago what I know today. I would have done a better job. But you know, you're working with imperfect knowledge um, and <clears throat> a creature who's who's alien to you in many ways and who, you know, you you can try to understand as best you can, but you know where there will always be gaps in understanding, and whose needs, in some ways, like a child, are are limitless. So, I think guilt is always part of the picture. And on the other hand, um, I want to just encourage people to um, for. <laughs> in self-forgiveness and so embracing the good that you are already doing. And yeah, there's always more that we can be doing, but you're, if you're thinking about these things, you're already doing a good job. And yeah, that, that's step one.
0: Yeah. And I think that, some of the people who might tend to be the hardest on themselves are the people that care about their dogs the most.
1: Exactly, exactly right. So, so yeah, if you're feeling guilty, take that, uh, you know, pat yourself on the back and say, you know, good job. <laughs> I'm doing something right, and now let's look for ways that I can do things even better, um, because there always will be. And I mean, every day I find things that I could be doing better, even though I've been reading. In this literature for 10 years, mm-hmm. there are things that I don't know, um, or the things about my individual dog who, you know, they change, or, you know, that I just haven't paid enough attention to. So.
0: One of the things that I love about unleashing your dog is that it caused me to reframe the way that I talk about my own dog. So instead of saying dog owner, I'm like mm-hmm. thinking about like companion and guardian, as you suggest in the book. How did your language shift over time, and how did you sort of come to realize that you needed to reframe the way that you think about your own dogs?
1: Well, I mean... I think it's the the language, the fact that our language feels really awkward and inadequate, um, is suggestive, um, and there are reasons that it, nothing feels quite right. And you know what what doesn't feel right about owner, even though it's technically legally correct, is that it it speaks to a kind of master slave dialectic, you know, mm-hmm. um, and and really you can't own another sentient living being. That's a construct and and, an ethically problematic one. Um, So even just shifting our language to talk about ourselves as companions to our dogs or friends to our dogs, um, I think is helpful in just reframing who we are in relation to them. They are our companions and we're their companions. And it's it's more of a partnership and a kind of an equal. And Guardian, I think, is kind of stilted in a way. But what I like about it is, for one thing, that it gets past the owner language. And also that in many ways, we it's our responsibility to to protect them because we ask them to live in human environments that in many ways are unsafe or unfriendly to dogs. You know, for example, roads (laughs) with cars that are going very fast. Um, you know, it'd be irresponsible to say, I'm, I am my dog's friend. I'm not going to put any constraints on my dog and just leave the door open all the time and let my dog, um, you know, fend for him or herself and be totally free. Um, you know, that that's not quite right either. So I think of it as a combination of guardian slash companion.
0: Excellent. Yeah. And that's always confused me whenever I see people walking around with their dogs with no leash or lead on them. The other day we were driving down um, I-71 in Ohio and we drove past a rest stop and there was a person a couple hundred feet from the interstate and their dog wasn't on a lead. And it was a very confusing moment for me because I could tell that they wanted their dog to get some exercise and they wanted their dog to run around. But man, one thing happens and that dog may run down towards that highway and that could be it. And that's not safe either. And that makes me sad as well.
1: Yeah. I... I Totally agree. And I actually was witness to to a really horrible incident once that would it's one of these things I'll never get out of my mind. But some a couple walking their dog happily off leash, but they got too close to a trailhead and the trailhead was on a busy road and their dog got a little bit ahead of them and actually ran across the road to say hi to my dog and got hit by a truck. And it was the the worst thing I've ever seen. they it was just awful. so um, and it may have been a dog even with perfect recall, but they it was just a momentary lapse of of attention. and you're right, who knows when there's gonna be a squirrel or or something. So um, unleashing is, you know, it's great to give dogs opportunity to really be off leash, but it has to be in a place that's bulletproof.
0: So while you were working on unleashing your dog, what were some of the greatest, um, success stories that you heard from friends, readers, or people that you worked with? What are some of the happiest things that you heard about or learned?
1: You know, I think, um, the, the favorite ones that, that I've Um, that I've heard, and they're all along the same theme are, I just have slowed down my dog walks and let my dog just take his or her time. And um, because the really, I'd say one of the most important enhancements we talk about in the book is just letting your dog sniff. Dog's rarely get enough time to sniff they they always want to do more (laughs) and that's one of the things that you know i used to when i walked my dogs i i think i had in my mind that i needed to get them physical exercise and that it was really important for their health that we get you know this vigorous 30 minute walk or 45 minute walk and so i was always kind of hurrying them along come on we gotta we gotta get our heart rates up (laughs) and you know what they wanted to do was linger over the smells in the neighborhood and so that that's one of the changes that I made when I really took in the research on the the canine nose and what the nose is doing um and how they really see the world through their noses I just slowed way down and the walk has a very different purpose for me now um and it's more fun. It's more fun for me, and it's more fun for Bella for sure. Just to to linger over
0: things. Well, it's also not your walk, right? It's Bella's walk. Ex-
1: exactly, and I think you know it's okay if sometimes the walk is about your exercise, but sometimes it should be about your dog. Um, and you know, you just need to. And it's one of the things that that we recommend in the book is just be clear at the beginning about your intention. Yeah, um, and and because the walk has so much potential for becoming a point of frustration and contention, and you see dogs pulling on leashes, and you see people pulling on dogs, and that that's a mismatch in expectations and desires. And when you can get those in harmony, it's so much more fun for everybody.
0: We uh, we call that sniffing uh, Duffy going out to check his P mail.
1: That's so cute. That's the exact language we use in the book.
0: Love it. Love it. So, you write that dogs must compromise as well to live with human beings we don't just compromise by you know taking them out with uh, letting them out when they need it and making sure they're fed when they need it they also compromise to live with us what do we mostly do that puts aside our dog's doggy natures um that the dog is then forced to compromise with what are some of the most common compromises that dogs make
1: um (coughs) excuse me um You know, we, many of us ask our dogs to live inside for, for many, many hours a day. And, and a dog might only get access to the outside world during their morning and evening walk. And that's a compromise because, you know, what, what they want to do is go out and read (laughs) P-Mail and, you know, depending on the dog, maybe interact with other dogs or just see what's going on in the world. And, you know, um protect the house or whatever it is that 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 particular dog feels that they need to do um you know we really we don't think of dogs typically as captive animals because you know they're not unlike an elephant at a zoo or a tiger they're not behind bars in such an obvious way although some are crated um during a long work day um but they're they are captive in the sense that we really control the contours of their day. When they can go out, when they get to pee and poop and where, what they eat, when they eat, um, who they get to interact with, if anybody, you know, dogs and people, and, you know, even the the speed and direction of their movement, because they're typically on a collar and a leash. Um, so they really don't have that much freedom just to follow their own desires about, you know, what they feel like doing. And, you know, people, I think, have a tendency to say, well, dogs have it easy, because all they have to do is lay around in the house mm-hmm. on the couch and take a nap and then have somebody feed them a bowl of food. But that's actually kind of a boring life. You know, it's, they're not really allowed to make choices. And we we use the language of agency in the book a lot. Um they They don't get to shape their own existence.
0: Yeah. You know, and the book contains some humorous yet true examples of coming home from work all day. And I love the quote, how's my little prisoner doing? Yeah. You know, and that line made me cringe a little bit because, you know, I've been a high school teacher for years and years and my wife was a lawyer. And so we'd come home after 10 hour days at work. And we'd walk in, and all the dogs would be sitting there waiting for us. So, yeah. if we face the reality that our dogs are, in fact, our captives, yeah. um, I think that what a lot of dog owners might say is they would come in and see those little hopeful faces, and they would say, "I'm so tired, little dog. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> tomorrow." Yeah, you know what I mean. And it's yes. like it's a really lackadaisical approach to taking care of the needs of your animal. So, you know, how can we help the inspire lackadaisical guardians who may come home after a long day and just say, I don't have it in me today, but it's really just personal selfishness. How can we, what are some easy tips to help turn that around?
1: Um, I mean, I think what you said just a few minutes ago, which is that our dogs are actually making compromises for us and making sacrifices so it isn't really too much to ask for us to make sacrifices for them and they they give us their entire life so you know we can get on our snow boots when it's you know 10 below it's really unpleasant to have to go walk the dog sometimes it's not always what you feel like doing but we owe it to them um and to get out the Sorry, you can hear Bella in the background. I love it. No, I'm leaving all this in the recording,
0: by the way. This is all staying
1: in. (laughs) She's doing her job. Yeah. (laughs) Protecting the house from the UPS guy. I love it. Um, Yeah, I mean, just if you think about, you know, they've given, you've been gone for 10 hours. They've given you 10 hours of their day that they've sacrificed doing nothing. You can give them half an hour to take them on a nice walk outside and just give them some fresh air and just give them you. I think, you know, we, (laughs) this isn't quite related, but you know, we, we bought Bella this, I think it's called a go dog go. It's an automatic ball thrower. Oh, nice. We thought this is the greatest thing ever invented. We can lay in the hammock in the backyard and this toy, this machine is going to throw balls for Bella and she'll be happy and we'll be happy. And the fact is, you know, she had no interest in this ball thrower because playing ball is a two person game. It's what I mean, the, the human interaction, us throwing the ball was the most important part of it for her. It wasn't just chasing the ball. And that was an important lesson to me. Like, ah, oh, OK, I, I need to reframe that for myself and, and really um when she wants to play ball with me, really like going, you know, when you have kids, sometimes you're really tired at the end of the day, but you still play with them and read them bedtime stories because you love them. So, you know, do the same for your dog.
0: Well, you know, say you had a son that was like seven years old and he loved hitting baseballs and you go out for a few months and you throw baseballs for your son every day, but then you decide, okay, I'm going to install a giant, like, batting cage in my backyard. (laughs) And you have a machine out there. So the mom and dad are inside the house laying on the couch watching Netflix and the kids outside in the backyard in their batting cage. Eventually they're going to stop using that batting cage because there's no engagement with it. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: And I think many of us would look at that and say, oh, that's kind of sad. Yeah. Uh, So, and I, yeah, same thing with the dog. I think it was kind of sad that we, that we tried the, the ball thrower and shame on us.
0: Well, we there learned we our go. lesson
1: because it was a wasted $100.
0: <laughs> so we, the book talks a lot about these two concepts of deprivations and enhancements. And you've kind of alluded to both of these already. Mm-hmm. Um, so deprivations of our, doggy, our dog's doggy natures are very common. So are there any like really awesome enhancements we can make, even if our dogs are like mine, like 15, 14 years old and are very mellow. Is there any like really good things that you would encourage for like older dogs? Cause that's personally relevant to me.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing I would say is that old dogs still need to get out in the world. Um, You know, when, when Maya was 15, Sometimes we literally would walk 10 yards, but I would drive her over to the park to um, a grassy area that she just found stimulating, like for her olfactory sense. Um, She didn't have very good vision anymore and didn't hear very well, but her nose worked just fine. (laughs) So I just take her out to this grass and we would just sit there and Bella could chase ball and it's hard when you have dogs who have different needs or different you think you know interests and desires and ideas about what's going to fulfill them. It can be challenging. But I'd throw the ball for Bella, and Maya would just get to sit and sniff, and she still liked interacting with other dogs. Um, so I think just knowing your dog and knowing what makes them tick? You know, sometimes people talk about, you know, really taking the ball oriented dog example. Um, Oh, it's so sad. My dog can't chase a ball anymore because he has arthritis. Um, well, uh, some dogs can get a lot of pleasure just from having a ball rolled in, you know, between their legs, Mm. they still get the, the pleasure of kind of getting the ball. Um, And, you know, just adapting what you do, I have um, some neighbors who have a, it's a a cat, actually, a diabetic cat, but (laughs) they take their cat out for walks in the stroller. It's really cute with the dog and the cat loves it. The cat, you can just see the cat is really alert and sniffing and looking around, even though the cat can't really walk very well, the cat is still getting um, sensory enrichment. So looking for ways and, you know, if your dog can't move around that much, give them extra yummy treats to eat. You know, of course, the caveat there is it's really easy to let a dog get too heavy. Yeah, Um, And so you got to kind (laughs) of balance giving them yummy treats with letting them get obese. But, you know, just finding ways to excite their senses
0: one thing that really jumped out at me as well is when we do take our dogs out in the world many of us tend to go to dog parks and you have a lot of really fascinating information in the book about dog parks and about how they tend to be overwhelmingly negative as far Mm -hmm. as how we talk to our dogs when we're at dog parks like don't do this don't do that there's tons of negativity can you discuss a little bit about what you found
1: yeah sure so um yeah, if you just if you go into a dog park and just sit and watch the people for a while, you you may notice. And each dog park is different. I each dog park has a kind of personality. Um, but in in some in particular, you'll find people bossing their dogs around the whole time, like oh, don't sniff that dog's butt. That's rude. Or don't mount that dog. That's Mm -hmm. rude. And all of these are totally normal dog behaviors, um, incidentally. Or, you know, people um, often try to interrupt rough and tumble play. Um, One piece of information that we share in the book, one research study that, that might be helpful for people is that almost never does rough and tumble play in a dog park escalate to true aggression. I mean, what might look to us like it's escalating into aggression might not actually be, I mean, dogs play rough Um, and sometimes growling and barking are part of the play interaction. So, you know, in, in less than 1% of cases will, will play actually degenerate into into fighting. That's not to say it doesn't happen. And, you know, it's, it's a good thing to know your dog and be paying attention to what's happening. You know, it's like you go to the playground, you don't manage your child's play, but you also don't just sit and get on your phone and not pay attention to where your child is. Right. And then you look up and your child is gone. Um, so same thing, you know, let your dog be, on his own or on her own, but don't micromanage. You see a lot of helicopter parenting. And somebody um, I was talking to just a couple days ago who had read um, our book said, oh, it's kind of like free range parenting for dogs. And I think that's a really good analogy. Just, um, you know, backing off a little bit on the helicopter parenting and letting them take risks and make choices and you know, figure out how to resolve their own conflicts and so forth.
0: Nice. So one of the things that I really like whenever I go out on slow walks with one or all of my dogs is that I notice things around me a little more. Like I notice, like if if Duffy's stopping to check the Mm -hmm. P-mail, I notice the beauty in the clouds a little more. I notice like what flowers are springing up in my neighbor's yard. And so I find myself paying much more attention to the world when I'm out on a dog walk because it's their walk. Yeah. Do you you have any favorite new experiences that you've had while purposely trying to enhance your dog's freedom? Like, have you had, had any experiences or learned anything new or gone anywhere new that you otherwise would not have had you not purposely set out to improve your dog's lives?
1: You know, I just what you've said, I think when you it's kind of a a Zen teaching that our dogs can offer us is just to be in the present moment. Yeah. Um, and when I'm on a slow walk or lingering over female with Bella, um, one of the things that I sort of challenge myself with is to try to notice something that I've never noticed before in my neighborhood that I've walked a million times yeah. and I always find something there are always things that I've just walked past somehow or looked past. So, um, that's, that's been challenging and interesting. And, you know, I, um, one really important thing that at least in where I live, um, you know, there, there are mountain lions and bears and other critters that one wants to be cautious about. And so paying attention to what our dogs are paying attention to, um, can be, you know, a, a good strategy to yeah. staying safe. And, you know, I had, um, w- an experience with, with Odie years ago in Pittsburgh in a park walking, he never, he was the friendliest dog in the entire world. And he only in his life got, um, nervous Once, And I was walking him alone in a park in Pittsburgh, and he got really nervous about two guys that were walking past me. And it made me – it definitely made my kind of – it made my radar go up. Like, what is Odie aware of that I'm not aware of in this situation? And just – you know, I think we can just – by becoming – I I mean, I think our sensory experience of the world is always going to be far less perceptive than theirs in many ways. We're just (laughs) kind of dumb animals. Mm -hmm. Um, But we can learn from them um, and just pay attention to our surroundings in ways that we
0: might not otherwise. Speaking of learning, um, neuroscience is a huge field for Mm -hmm. you know studying the brain and you mentioned several times throughout the book something that I've never really thought of and that's dog cognition research Mm -hmm. and it seems like you refer in the book that this is getting a lot of attention new scholarship is coming out Um, are there any like examples of studies that you've been excited to read in the past few years you have any scholarly shout outs or (laughs) things like that I'm
1: sure so well you mentioned um, the the Neuroimaging and there's been some really interesting research done by Gregory Burns um, at Emory and he uses functional magnetic resonance imaging with companion dogs and um, it's it's all voluntary. this is the other thing I love about it. The dogs are are pets, they're not research animals. The dogs don't have to do it if they don't want to um, and they they go through a very extensive training. To learn to be comfortable going inside, and I don't know if you've ever been in an MRI machine, but they're kind of claustrophobic. Yeah. And, um But the dogs are go through this training process that they actually seem to really enjoy because it's challenging to their <laughs> brains. Um, and then um, Burns and his team will will do various kind of experimental setups to see what's going on, which parts of the dog's brains are being activated by, um, and most of it has to do with human dog communication. Um, and that's really interesting. So, you know, do um, do dogs' brains respond to angry human faces um, differently than not angry human faces? And they do. They don't like, I mean, it seems obvious, Doesn't it that they would be upset by angry human faces, but they are. Um, so that research is really interesting. And I think, um, another study that I found was very interesting was, um, they compared how well dogs responded to verbal commands versus gestural commands. So they had this uh, experimental setup where they had trained dogs to, um, identify and retrieve a couple of different objects by, by a word in a ball or whatever. And then they had a, a gesture, like a pointing gesture. And then they had, um, they had one set up where it was just, you know, the, the jet, ge- the gesture and one where it was just the for verb, the verbal command. And they had one where the verbal command and the gestural command were, were, Contradicting, so you know, get the ball, but pointing to the frisbee, and the dogs almost without fail, responded more strongly to the gestures than the verbal command, which I think is a really important piece of information for people who are training their dogs um, and a lot of you know what i what I had to learn when I was learning to teach Bella and Maya was how bad I was. At, as a trainer, um, because you're giving verbal commands, but at the same time, you're doing all this weird stuff with your hands that to your dogs is actually, we don't think of it as information, but they're trying to kind of process this as information. And it's in what animal behaviorists would call messy signaling. What's what, what humans do to, to their dogs, um, rather than giving a clear You know, holding your hands very still and giving a clear verbal command or vice versa, giving um, a gestural command and ideally doing both at once and having a dog. um, You know, my daughter's dog is amazingly well trained. She can um, raise her fist up. And for Poppy, that means she needs to sit and stop wherever she is. Um, it's great because if it's a place that's loud or for some reason there's background noise and Poppy wouldn't be able to hear her, she she has a, a way to safely have Poppy stay where she is. So.
0: so did you say that that concept was called messy signaling, right? Yes. Okay, so... Imagine that there's like a a kindergarten teacher. Is there like an equivalent, like a human equivalent you can give for like what would be a messy signal for, um, like the human equivalent of like whenever we're very much learning brand new things for the first time?
1: Well, what what comes to mind? It's not exactly messy signaling. It's contradictory signaling, but we, I think we do this to our dogs too, as a the parent. And we've all seen them in the grocery store. And maybe we've even been this person who's screaming at their child. Don't scream.
0: Oh yeah. Okay. That makes like, sense.
1: Okay. Uh, you need to give a consistent message in a consistent way.
0: Yeah. So, so. Some, something that I struggle with as well is there are like people who live in certain places around the world where I'm like, that is not a good place to like own a dog. Yeah. You know, do you struggle with that? I know I'm very judgmental on this, but are there any places that people live where you would be like a thousand percent like advising them (laughs) do not get a dog because it will inherently not be good for the dog. Like, does that exist for you? You
1: know, I, I'm not sure that I would go quite that far because I think, I think people do, incredibly well in in situations that I personally would find extremely challenging, like living on the eightieth floor of a, an apartment in New York. Right. Where you had to go down eighty floors every time your dog wanted to go pee. Yeah. Um to me that sounds really challenging for human and dog, but people do it and and dogs can be people can do it well. I think those kinds of environments are more challenging for dogs because it's harder it's harder for them to be unleashed (laughs) Um, and places where they might be unleashed might be limited to dog parks, which some dogs like and some dogs really dislike. Um, And they're just, they're loud and um, there's a lot of activity. And, you know, for some dogs like Bella would die if she had to live in New York city, because she's really sensitive to noise overload and, and then there are dogs who probably will be totally fine with it. So, you know, I think I'm not sure I'd make a blanket statement, but I think there are places where it's much easier to, to give a dog a good life than in other places. Gotcha. Some places you just got to work a lot harder.
0: So I only have one more question that's spring into mind. Um, if there is one thing that you wish that every single dog guardian would do, what is it?
1: Oh, so many choices. Um, I think what I would say is, and it seems really obvious, but we also don't do it that much is pay attention to your dog, like actually observe your dog as, um, like become an ethologist, somebody who studies, who observes animal behavior with your own dog. Um, and, you know, even going so far as taking notes um, about, you know, what gets your dog interested or excited or, you know, in, under what circumstances does your dog bark? And how many different barks does your dog have? What do they mean? Growls. I mean, people, in some ways, we know our dogs so well. And in other ways, we don't know them at all. So know your dog. Sort of like know thyself. Know thy dog.
0: Nice. Um, If people want to know more, like if they want to find your work, your other books, um, where can they find you?
1: So I have a website. Uh, It's just very easy. Um, www.jessicapierce.net. And then um, I have a Psychology Today blog which is the title of it is all dogs go to heaven. And there are a bunch of essays there. Um, And those two, two places are good places to start. Amazon has all of my books for sale. So that's another place to look too.
0: Awesome. Well, Dr. Jessica Pierce, I am really enjoying the new book, Unleashing Your Dog, co-author with Mark Beckhoff and the subtitle, A Field Guide to Giving Your Canine Companion the Best Life Possible. You have given me several ideas for helping me give my own dogs the best life possible. So I'm really grateful to you for uh, writing the book and spending time with me today to talk about it.
1: Thanks, Greg. It It was fun to be here with you.